when you're ready. Let's start this game. Welcome to Unstaffed and Let's Unwind with best-selling author Lily Brooks Dalton. Let's find out about her writing process and latest novel, The Light Pirate. Hey, this is Sarah from the Bay County Public Library. Hey, this is Stephen from the Huntsville-Madison County Public Library. And I'm Lily Brooks Dalton, the author of The Light Pirate. Can you introduce our listeners to The Light Pirate? Um, Sure. So The Light Pirate is a novel that centers on one family in a rural coastal town in Florida um, as they are navigating some really rapid changes in their environment. And um, the narrative focuses on Wanda, who's their daughter. And as the youngest of the family, she's also kind of the future of this place. So the book follows her uh, throughout her lifetime. The Light Pirate is one of, I think, hands down, one of my favorite reads of 2022. Uh It's beautifully written. um, And it's so hard to describe the book to friends because I'm a Floridian. Uh, Stephen is a former Floridian. And so the premise is truly a nightmare. It's horrifying. There's, you know, hurricanes and climate change. But because your writing is so beautiful, you can't help but want to be kind of immersed in that world. Uh, So how do you as a writer keep that tightrope balance of terrifying might be able to happen and mythical, magical, and dreamlike? Well, I mean, first of all, thank you so much. That's so um, kind of you to say and so nice to hear. And and yeah, it's it's definitely a tricky tightrope to walk and something that I think about a lot and that comes up in my work a lot because I do find myself gravitating towards subject matter that is kind of dark, um, both literally and and figuratively, you know, I think for me, well, for me as a person, honestly, I find that I would rather look at the thing that is scary and just face it head on and talk about it and think about it rather than kind of try and pretend it's not there. And so I think that's a big part of what I wanted to do with this book is to look at how scary climate change is and how hard it is to have these conversations and how many different responses um, emotionally and uh, practically people have to to this sort of um, dread that I think we are all experiencing. So yeah, I mean, gosh, that doesn't totally answer your question. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that maybe that's a place to start. And part of it's even just your your writing style. There's a lot of it's very poetic and um the dreamlike. I really felt the dreamlike quality within your writing. Oh, thank you. Yeah, that's a good point. I I do think finding a way with language to create little pockets of beauty among like in the midst of a plot that is maybe a little dark is something that I think about a lot, making sure that I tease out that imagery, just those little highlights between characters, I guess. And then just making sure, you know, I was really conscious with this book about wanting to end it on a note that felt hopeful. And that, um, as I was writing, it felt like a really tall order and a really tricky thing to do, but I knew that it was so important to maintain that balance that, that you're talking about. So, yeah. Talking about the, uh, the research of climate change, how far down the rabbit hole did you, did you go for this in the research? Uh, pretty far, <laughs> pretty far down. I mean, you know, I worked on this book for a number of years. Um, I guess in the end it was five. It's hard to keep track with all the drafts. Yeah, I was really living, living in this world that I was creating and trying to make it as realistic as possible. Um, so that included reading a lot of nonfiction and then also spending my like fiction writing time fully imagining it. So it was a, it was kind of a taxing book to write, to be totally honest. And the, the light pirate is told in four parts, power, water, light, and time. So can you dive into how you decided to separate the book into four parts and, and selecting those components? Yeah, I, 
I think the most exciting thing for me as a novelist is structure um, and thinking about how a story is put together. And so I was, you know, working on a rough draft and I didn't initially have that that structure in place. I was just sort of writing that opening section about the hurricane. And it wasn't until I started writing these really small sections giving the hurricane its own perspective that it really started to feel like it had legs. You know, it really started to, to move for me. And so then from there, it was a matter of thinking about what about that felt compelling how to do it, but not overdo it, because I think there, that was definitely a, a line that I was walking in terms of, yeah, just not wanting to, to overdo any kind of personification of, of nature, but, but also wanting to use these elemental forces as the guiding structure behind the book. So once I decided that I wanted to do that, that I wanted to pull in these different larger concepts, these like elemental forces, it became pretty clear how to, how to do that just as the story was unfolding. Like I think those two things really meshed together pretty easily. And I got really excited about wanting the, the tone and the pacing of the book to kind of, to subtly shift along with those sections. So, you know, in power, it's covering a really short period of time. We're moving through a hurricane, the chapters are really short. There's like a, a really quick tempo. It's almost, you know, adjacent to a thriller. And then we move into water and, and time lengthens a little bit and things become a little more gradual. And it's kind of this idea of a slower moving uh, force, if you will. And then with light, there's this element of magic that comes into it and this sort of intangible force that that can't quite be pinned down that's able to kind of transcend time in this way because it's moving between two two timelines and and so on so um yeah I, once I figured out that structurally that's something I wanted to play with I think the plot itself really kind of hooked arms with that idea and we like went forward together and there's still a large bit of cohesiveness, even though there is pacing differences, it it does go straight into your next part and feel as one. Um, yeah, right. And that was really tricky. Um, that I think that was probably one of the hardest parts of writing the book it is both making these different sections feel um, unique, but also they have to fit together, right? And it, I think in earlier drafts that wasn't happening quite as as well. Um, so that's something I really had to work on massaging those like um, transitions. You mentioned kind of how it, it, it had thriller moments at it, and the, the way, in a way, we we have this this landscape and these natural forces that are just dangerous and indifferent to, to, to the humans there. And it kind of reminded me of like, in a way of a horror trope, in a, in a way that, you know, Lovecraft in a way where we have these uncaring, uh, where humans are inconsequential to to these things. Um, and I understand that, you know, genre is, is, is a, a creation of publishers just to market stuff. But when, when you're writing these, do you think of it as, as, do you have a genre in your mind that you're kind of shooting for? Is it thriller? Is that horror? Is it, is it fiction? Is it something else? I love that question and I agree with you. It's 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 funny how genres are kind of just made up <laughs> after the fact. Um, I definitely have this idea of wanting to use a thread of magical realism in my mind, but I don't think it was until after I was really kind of polishing and done with the manuscript that I was looking at it and seeing like, oh yeah, there's like a thriller here and a family drama here and like maybe a little bit of mystery, you know, just like assigning those seeing those tropes pop up. And yeah, I'd like to say that I would, that was my plan all along, <laughs> but it's funny the way a book kind of just happens and shows you stuff after the fact. And of course, readers show you stuff too, after the fact, like getting to talk to readers now that the book is out, I'm hearing so much stuff that is really smart that I definitely didn't uh, think all the way through. So I appreciate that part of it too. 
And even when you mentioned magical realism, I was going to ask you about that. I was like, is it magical realism? Since we get to ask the author, um, or is it like this evolutionary trait that just kind of happens in this not so distant future? Yeah, well, I really wanted it to be either or. I think I've noticed myself really gravitating towards things like that in my books, wanting to leave enough space for the reader to choose whichever thing that resonates with them the most. And I think that can be frustrating for some readers, right? Um, and I, I hear that, but uh, I think for me, that is one of the things that fiction can do so beautifully is create this negative space between a reader and a writer that we fill together. You know, I leave a space here and the reader and like welcome the reader in to, to fill it up and, and decide for themselves what it is. So to more directly answer your question, um, the magical realism slash evolutionary science moment for me, because I think it's, it's correct, whatever you decide as a reader, but for me is really both is really kind of one in the same. And I think that's an idea that I wanted to play with in the book of like, where, where, what is the difference between these two things? Is there one? Is it just a matter of perspective? So yeah, that's it. Maybe that's a, like a cheat, but <laughs> that's my answer. And it adds a little bit of that hope to the book as well. <laughs> For sure. A little bit of magic. <laughs> a little bit of levity, like something unexpected could happen here. There's like a little a little extra help. Yeah. We had, talk, we had talked to uh, Sam Miller previously about dystopic fiction and how he writes toward, he writes dystopic, but aims toward hope and utopia. Um, and obviously, I, there was a quote I saw from you saying, uh, in a nature that is hopelessly divided, this is perhaps one thing we can all agree on. Something terrible is coming and is in fact already happening. So let's talk about that. How, how, what goes into thinking about, you know, being in that horrible place, trying to, to end it on a, on a, in a hopeful fashion? I think we do all feel this overwhelming sense of dread these days. Like, I don't think it's gonna shock anyone or any, like <laughs> I'm having a hard time uh, imagining the listener that's gonna disagree with me there, but perhaps you do exist. To the listeners that agree on that, on that front, um, it's a really ambiguous feeling, I think that we're all experiencing and we're all, you know, it's a really collective experience that we're having, I think. And this is something that fiction can do for us is to kind of pin that down, transform it into a narrative, which, you know, that is something that I think human beings are uniquely um, attracted to and, and built for is, is to absorb narrative and to really appreciate it and use that as a guiding force in our lives. So I think that... Gosh, I'm, I'm getting a little bit lost in my own answer, <laughs> but maybe that's part of my point even is like, these things are hard to talk about in our daily lives, like this kind of nebulous feeling of dread. Like, what do you say about that? If you feel it every day, maybe you talk about it once in a while, but it's hard to discuss in a way that feels productive and worth the words spent on it. So I, I think that there's a way in which fiction and other kinds of storytelling too can help us puzzle through that, give us different avenues to talk about it and to think about it um, that are a little more, that are contained, right? It's like, this is within the covers of this book. You get to explore this idea in this really kind of safe contained space where you can opt out when you want to. It will end at some point. Like, I think there's something comforting about meeting these ideas in, in these kinds of formats that are so pervasive in our daily lives. That was kind of a messy answer, but I hope that. <laughs> and I'm going to continue on to that thread a little bit. Um, and speaking of genres, well, there's way more of the, I didn't even hear of cli-fi until I was reading descriptions of your book and 
I think there's more climate fiction titles out there, which makes sense because so many of us are personally affected by natural disasters as a result of climate change. Stephen and I were both in a Category 5 hurricane, which, um, well, I thought it was unique. However, when we share, it's like, oh, but I've been in this wildfire and I've been in this flood and like being in a natural disaster is no longer an oddity and having to have a, a community that is in disaster recovery is becoming more norm. Um, so with that, I was curious about the origin story of the light pirate and was there a moment that sparked or how did it begin? Yeah, I was at a writing residency in Key West and a hurricane was headed toward us. And I remember watching the island kind of jump into this preparatory action and everyone knew what to do. Everyone who wasn't a tourist knew what to do, you know? Um, and there was this rhythm to it. And even just seeing it the one time, it became so evident how many times that had happened, this sort of like well-worn pattern. And um, I couldn't stop thinking about it. So that's kind of, and, you know, it, this idea of using a hurricane as the way into the book, it pulled in all the themes that I wanted to, like, it's a, it's a compelling, dramatic piece of plot. It's pulls in some themes that I was struggling with and wanted to think through on the page and talk about, you know, it gave me a way to introduce a cast of characters at this like peak anxious moment where they're all responding really differently to the stimulus. Um, so it just, I was just like, oh, this is perfect. This is like a really compelling way into a story. I've been a Florida resident for more than half my life. And I, try, I was trying to think about the number of hurricanes that we have kind of gone through and just think the, the description of everybody knows what they're supposed to do. And half the time it's eh, just wait and see and we'll figure out what happens <laughs> until then nobody cares kind of thing. Yeah. Totally. Well, okay. So that hurricane ended up not hitting us. We got a bad rainstorm. That's it. So it's, a, it's a hard call to make, you know, and my, my parents live in Florida on a, in a coastal town. And so this is something I hear from them a lot also where, you know, my mom wants to leave. She's like really freaked out. My dad is like, no, we're good. We're going to, we're going to ride this one out. Don't worry about it. Um, and I think that's so interesting. Like neither of those reactions are wrong per se. I mean, in hindsight, you can say one is right and one is, one is wrong, but each of these events is so different and human beings are different in the amount of risk that they're that they find acceptable um which i think is something we as a culture have really explored the past couple of years <laughs> so i i just think it's really interesting to explore the differences of, of people without like assigning a right or wrong kind of moral decision to to any of it I want to jump back to something you, you mentioned previously in one of my answers here, uh, where we were talking about the research and delving into the climate change. And you mentioned that it was is a draining topic. Um, so I want to kind of, from a writing perspective, how do you care from your own for your own mental health when you're you know writing about such high anxiety style topics? That's a good question. Um, I'm not sure I have a good answer. I was like pretty bummed for a couple years working on this. I, I wish I had something really tangible and, and helpful to offer you, but I've, I've really struggled with, with this. You know, if I'm, if I'm being transparent, which is how I want to be, it's a struggle to both have the conversation. It's a struggle to learn how to take care of yourself while looking at, at this dread face on, you know, and I think, well, I think the answer is probably different for everyone. Right. But for me, getting a lot of sleep <laughs> helps, um, you know, like all the basic stuff, staying hydrated, um, like eating well, exercising on a regular basis. You know, I think those answers are all really accessible. Like we've heard all of that before and, and that doesn't make it any less important and true. But I think, I wonder if what you're getting at is actually the sort of 
the psychological caretaking that we kind of are need, we need so desperately. And I guess for me, phone calls are maybe the thing that I would point to as the most important psychological coping mechanism is like being good at picking up the phone and calling someone that I care about who cares about me and maybe not even talking about this like maybe talking about something else but just like writing is a really lonely job and so practice like practicing outreach and and exercising that muscle of connection when thinking so deeply about isolation is probably a very long way to get to that answer, but. <laughs> and I'm sure having a, having a, uh, that grasp of hope at the end is also kind of goes into wrapping up as well. For sure. I think if I hadn't been planning ahead for the ending that I, that I gave to the book, if I hadn't known that that levity was available and was around the corner, it would have been even more difficult to be writing into the unknown. And like, I don't know, maybe everyone dies at the end. Like, <laughs> you know, like, um, so I think that was helpful being able to map out this story in which hard things happen and beautiful things happen. And maybe like self-soothing a little bit with knowing when, when each of those things happens and like pacing myself. And that might be just the reason we're never seeing that those final books of Game of Thrones because he knows everybody's going to die and he's too depressed to write them. That is a fascinating <laughs> theory. And I think you might be onto something. I like it, Stephen. Yes. I wanted to dive in a little bit to your characters. Uh, Phyllis is my personal favorite character within the book. I just love how she's connected with the environment. She's a little bit of a prepper, but um, she's still, you know, a biologist. She's a scientist and she's looking towards the future. And I adore her relationship and her impact on Wanda's character. Um, so I was curious if you could dive a little bit into your development of characters and especially because your character names are more unusual. Um, a name often kind of like influences how a character behaves or acts. So could you talk about what draws you to a name and then developing each of the characters? Sure. Um, so Wanda is a name that I found on a hurricane list, right? Because um, probably you, you guys know this, but maybe some people don't. There's, um, there are lists that are already written um, that will be assigned to hurricanes as they occur, right? I don't know how far out they go, but it's a couple of years, maybe five years or something. So I found Wanda on one of the future lists and I knew I wanted it to be a name kind of towards the end of the alphabet, you know, the end of a very busy season. And that name just jumped out at me as, as feeling right. And then Phyllis is actually, this is sort of a funny roundabout story, but um, I was doing an event for my last book years ago. It was like a benefit for a writing festival and um, people were bidding on packages or something. And I was one of the authors like helping to MC. And to sweeten the pot, I threw in, um, I will acknowledge you in my next book, Acknowledgements. And so that person ended up bidding on the the thing. And it turns out that she is an author also. She writes under the name PC Cast, um, but her but the P stands for Phyllis. And I was like, and this book took so long, it feels like it took so long, that I was like, I'm going to do her one better. <laughs> name a, a character I really love after her. Um, so that's where Phyllis came from. And the others, I don't, I'm not sure I really have a Genesis story. They just kind of uh, popped into my head and felt right. But yeah, I, uh, what was the other, my, what was the other part of your question? I think that was like the main part was just kind of like developing your characters. Um, and yeah, I, I enjoyed all of them. I enjoyed Kirby and, and Frida and, and Lucas and, but, but Phyllis was my favorite. <laughs> this is the best. Uh, I really like Phyllis too. I, so admire the way that she just 
lives life the way she wants to. And it, it, it doesn't look like a path that's been offered to her. She's really just forged her own way. And I so admire that. And yeah, I want all that energy in, in my own life, I think. Channel the inner Phyllis. <laughs> just to, because the way things have been going with the books that we've been reading here for, for our own podcast, everything seems to be predictive in a way, but Wanda, because hurricane names get reused over years, Wanda's on the list on 2027. So, you know, this may be one of those predictive books. Yeah, it might. Be. I mean, I hope it's not, uh, but I think that was part of my, I was like, you know, why don't I just take something from real life? I mean, like, I think this is something I, I both consciously and unconsciously did with the book is wanting to layer nonfiction and fiction, let's say, you know, it's like got this kind of speculative nonfiction flavor to it, if you will. And so there are these little things taken from our own reality to just keep it really grounded, but at the same time, you know, letting there be like a little, little sprinkle of magic in there too. Obviously this, this touches on real life subjects and such. To what extent do you think fiction can improve human life? That's a good question. To what extent? I think that fiction, and let, let I'm just going to rephrase it to storytelling because I think there's so many so many ways that we we do this is kind of an imperative. I'm not sure what a human life looks like without storytelling, and I I don't mean a, a life without reading books or watching movies or or any of that, but just the way that we talk, the way that we process our own days. Um, the way that we connect to each other is all, it all hinges on storytelling. And so I think it's, it's truly part of our species of, of, of what we do and how we behave as humans. I think it's part of how we process our own lives and how we imagine the future too. And so I think at a point in our civilization, when we desperately need to be imagining the future, I think it's it's vital. But in terms of like quality of life, well, yeah, I think that's really important too. I don't I don't know. I'm making some really grand statements here, but I we love you, grand statements. <laughs> what do you expect? I'm a writer. Yeah, super important. We try to have some fun. We're not just a depressing kind of topic, I think, here. And one of the things that we do is a game that you might know as something else, but we, because we are a PG podcast, we call it Kiss, Mary Ditch. Okay. <laughs> so I am going to give you three topics. I'm going to disguise them behind some a category thing. And you pick one of those three, and then there I will give you something that you either, that you will like, love, and one to get rid of. The categories to choose from are Nina and Nick's Kid, Heavy Metal Thunder, and I Will Survive. I'm going to choose I Will Survive. Aretha's Calling. We're going to talk about survivalist tools. So if you we're going to give you a flint striker, a fishing pole, or a crossbow. Which, which ones are you going to like, love, and get rid of? Oh, what, can, can you say them again? A flint striker, fishing pole, and a crossbow. Okay. I think I have to, I think I need the Flint striker because that's just unnecessary. And I think I, uh, so I guess that's my love. And I like the fishing pole because I genuinely enjoy fishing and also a girl's got to eat. So I guess I'm going to ditch the crossbow, even though that is also a useful tool. And I wish I could call it. <laughs> To, to give you an idea of what your other choices were, Nick and uh, Nina and Nick's kid would have had you rate George Clooney's. Oh, okay. There's reasons behind all of these, obviously. And Heavy Metal Thunder would have had you choose between three different uh, ultimate motorcycle rides. Whoa, that's a good one. Wait, does, so now do you guys have to do the the other categories that I didn't 
generally we, you know, for the most part, we've never done that. But you know, <laughs> if, if you as our guest insist that we do one, we will gladly do it. I think I insist, Stephen, with George Clooney, uh, would you uh, like the best? Okay, so I the, the choices I had here were Ocean's Eleven, ER, and Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? So, yeah. Strange. I like it. I, I wasn't, you know, because he's got a huge, huge list of things that he's done over time. My my love was obviously going to be Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? Because, you know, I, I, I love that movie so much and, you know, it's bona fide. It's so good. And then you'd have that soundtrack for life. And, and that is one of the the movies that I do own a soundtrack for. So obviously it's got to be there. The one I'm ditching is ER. Okay. I just wasn't into it when it was out there. And I, you know, it's, a, I'm sure looking back on it, it was one of those shows that I was just too young to, to appreciate, mm-hmm. but you give me a good heist movie any day of the week and it's going to beat that hospital drama. I feel like I'd agree with you. I don't think I've ever actually seen an episode of ER. So we can, we can cut that. That's fine. <laughs> I love it. Sarah, what about? Oh gosh. <laughs> well, I know n- nothing about motorcycles, so I couldn't do that one, but I was also going to go the same route. Um, I played the mountain dulcimer. So a lot of the tunes that we play are tunes that are in, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? They do it way better than I do, but um, I do have a soft spot for both the film and the soundtrack. I love it. <laughs> and Kind of to parallel with the Aretha's Calling, I Will Survive element, if we were to see the light pirate actually become reality, is there something you would hoard? Oh, that's a good question. I mean, I don't want to give you a boring answer like canned goods. That's not (laughs) given. Let's just rule out all the practical things because... That's not fun to talk about. (laughs) If I was going to hoard something unexpected, it would probably be, it would probably be be, be books. And I would just, I would shrink wrap all of them (laughs) and uh, just like be very loving and careful about, you know, the their their exposure to the elements so gotta keep the collection thriving this that's my answer so you would be like the community library so those would they would get in their boat and they would row your way and they'd be like can we please borrow (laughs) i would say of course you can don't (laughs) care lose it heavy fines librarian this is, I've got two different parts to this question. You said that this, this book has started about five years or so ago, and the heart of it is the, the slow decline of, of civilization here and the choices and things that we take for granted that lead to that now. It's, it's not the before apocalypse, it's not the, the after, it's, it's that slow decline. So over the course of this five years, is there anything that you feel like between when you started and when it finally came out that, you, that as you're writing and you're looking at the real world here that you like, you saw in reality that was, yes, that was a thing we, we should have uh, fought for and we didn't lo- realize we'd lost it until it was already passed. Wait, so things that we've, that we've lost since I started writing the book. Mm-hmm. Oh, I don't know. And, and maybe that's the answer. There might not be anything. Maybe we got lucky. Yeah. It's funny because when you started the question, I was like, oh, I know what this question is. And, but I think it's actually a different question. What I thought you were going to ask me is what has changed? Like what kind of was the surprising stuff that happened? And in a way that is the part of the, that's part of the question. So, I mean, let's go with what, with that one. It sounds better that way. All right. I'm just rewriting all your questions. Willy nilly. I, I apologize about that. Well, so when I started the book, Hurricane Maria hadn't happened yet. And obviously that happened really early on when I was drafting and became part of the narrative. There have been a number of storms that have occurred that just, I mean, when Houston lost power for so long, like these moments with electrical grid problems, with catastrophic weather events, 
it all felt really close to home while working on the book and some of it wormed its way into the plot. That was a weird, weird experience. I'm so sorry. I'm trying to find my way back to your, your question now and I just, I don't have anything. Well, yeah. Sit on that one for a while and if something pops up, we can jump back to it. But the, but the, the second part of that was um, obviously I read somewhere that over the way this book came to kind of practicalities, you had several other things that you're working on that just didn't seem to, to be hitting where you want them to be. And this idea just kept coming back to you. So how do you know when is a good time to let go of an idea? Oh, it's so hard because if it's something, if it's an idea you care about, then it's, there's real grief involved in putting it down. So, but at the same time, I, I, my experience with writing books has been that when a book wants to be written, it will bang down your door. Like it want, it's there and it's there to stay and you can't stop thinking about it. But it's really hard to tell the difference between like the, the, the concept that you love. So that's the, that's the pitfall that I found with the, the book that I had to let go of, which I might circle back to, never say never, is that I realized it was first and foremost, a concept that I loved. It was an idea and not a plot. It was like a thought exercise that I was really taken with. And I wanted to build a book around that. I don't know, maybe, maybe other writers do that and it works out really well. But for me, it, I had no way into the story of, of the idea. Um, so I felt like I was just going around knocking on walls, you know, like wishing they were doors. I think if a story lets you in, then you're in and you got to just like push through all the, because it's never going to be easy all the time. But if a story isn't inviting you in, I think that's kind of a moment to really consider if it's the right thing to be working on. And to bounce off of that, you were a writer in residence at the Kerouac House and the studios of Key West. So how does being at a residency affect your writing process? I actually have a hard time writing at, at writing residencies. And I didn't know that. I did both of those residencies pretty close together. And I mean, I also went to both of them with this idea that wasn't working. So that might be part of it. I have learned about myself over the past couple of years that I do my best writing in a really familiar routine. My life looks really boring when I'm doing my best writing. I, I, I definitely see value in, in going somewhere else to, to work on something. And I would love to try that again. Lately, I get the most done at home. And, and you know, I, I don't have any kids and I live alone. So like, you know, um, the environment is suited to that, which I know that not everyone's is, but yeah, I'm still figuring out, uh, how to do writing residencies to be, to be totally honest. And I would, and I would love to keep figuring that out, but for now I'm, I've got a good desk. I invested in a good desk and I like sitting at it. And what is your kind of day-to-day like well, lately it's been a little bit bonkers, um, just like doing <laughs> doing press for this book. Um, I've never done this much for a, for a book launch before. But aside from that, I get up, I make coffee, I have like a quiet kind of meditative ritual moment that I do in the morning of just like, yeah, just meditating a little bit. And I pet my cat and then I start working and uh, it, this is all, this is very boring. I'll, I'll try to exercise for like an hour a day, might do a yoga class or go for a big walk, or, um, I have a rowing machine, which is a thing from the pandemic, which I love. I love to row. It's so nice. Um, soothing and you know, I I'll break for lunch. I'll usually get way too hungry and, you know, realize it's an emergency, (laughs) something to eat and then get back to it. And, you know, by the time the day is over and I'm talking to my partner and she's like, how was your day? I'm like, oh, it was, I just 
it was good. And she's like, I did all this stuff. And I'm like, yeah, I didn't do any of that stuff. <laughs> but I did write 2000 words. So I feel pretty happy about it. That's a lot in one day. And I just finished, uh, or I'm reading lessons in chemistry, which there's a rowing machine in that. So maybe everyone should pick up a rowing machine so that we can I've heard it's great exercise. <laughs> it's a terrific form of exercise. And it if you get one of those water rowers, it makes like that whoosh, that whooshing water sound, which is very relaxing. So I, I thought that was going in a different direction where it had like a fan or something that shot water at you every so often to give you that <laughs> realistic thing. But I mean that I would uh, I would be interested in that experience. That sounds kind of fun. <laughs> You have some previous works that we, we haven't really talked about. You have uh, Motorcycles I've Loved, which is a, a memoir uh, about you exploring, coming back and touring a, on a motorcycle. The one I want to talk about is Good Night Midnight. And, and I'm sorry, Good Morning Good Morning Midnight. I, I butchered that, didn't I? I'm sorry. That's okay. I, why I wanted to talk about it and why we were talking George Clooney is uh, obviously that one was uh, turned into uh, The Midnight Sky. So what is it like having your books turned into a movie and how hard is it for you as a writer to let go of anything that might be changed or added to it? The word that I always use to describe the adaptation is extraordinary because it's just beyond anything that you really, that I really had a frame of reference for. I'm incredibly grateful for it. It was really exciting. It was beautiful to get to participate in that. And it was also complicated because they change a lot of stuff. And uh, sometimes you're like, I don't like that. <laughs> and there's nothing you can do about it. So um, it's one of those experiences that is everything um, all at once. And, you know, I think I, I kind of pat myself on the back a little bit for going into that and feeling really clear about like, this is no longer my thing. This is someone else's thing. And I think, I think I would have had a much more difficult time if I was feeling really attached to the book um, at still at that point. And I mean, obviously I'll always be attached to the book, but it just like that, that line felt really clear to me, like they're going to do something else. And my book exists on a shelf and it will always exist, I hope, on a shelf. And so it's, they're not taking anything away from me. This is a new, a new venture. Yeah, it's a little tricky sometimes when you don't love different directions that the adaptation takes, but um, I don't know. It's, um, I think that, I think you just have to hold it lightly, you know, and just, be prepared for it to be complicated and, and different or to, to feel complicated and to be different and just kind of go with the flow and enjoy the things that are fun about it and, and allow yourself the feelings when you don't, that aren't, you know, all rainbows. Um, because that's, I think, I think it, what felt tricky is having some feelings like that come up and feeling as if that wasn't allowed, like I wasn't supposed to feel any of that because I think, you know, it's okay to feel, to have complex emotions come up around stuff that to other people looks like you won the lottery. Literally winning the lottery, I think probably brings up some pretty complex feelings um, and that's okay. As an avid reader, usually I find I always love the book better. There's like one book that I've read where I like the movie better, but that's such a rare, <laughs> rare occurrence. The book is always better. Read that. <laughs> I love that. We are a library podcast. So how have libraries affected your life? Libraries have affected my life so deeply. I feel like I can't even imagine being a writer and not having like a really deep attachment to libraries. I remember when I was little, my mom, I grew up in a very small town. There was literally nothing in the town that I grew up in, but the town over had a small library and like a post office and a general store. So we would go there uh, to visit the library. And 
I just remember, you know, coming out of there with a big stack of books that I could barely see over and just being so excited and, you know, always like going for the the shelf with the fancy leather bound books on it that I couldn't possibly understand yet, but just like as objects, just like so desperately wanting to take those home. (laughs) Yeah. And like, you know, the moment when I was allowed, finally allowed to like actually take books out from the adult section, getting my own library card. Like there are so many moments that felt really important that are connected to libraries for me. So I love a library podcast and I'm so grateful to you guys for what you do. And it's always a joy to talk to librarians. Yes. Thank you so much for being on. Yes. I'm going to do some rapid fire questions here real quick. I've got a minute that I'm going to ask you just some quick, hopefully short answers here, but if they don't turn into short answers, that's okay. I'm going to start my timer. Do you learn by watching or doing? Mm, reading. I learn by reading. <laughs> uh, do you correct people's grammar? I try not to, but sometimes I do. Do you have a green thumb? Yes. Do you own chickens? No, I wish I did someday. Zen and the art of motorcycle maintenance or on the road? Zen and the art of motorcycle maintenance. Favorite movie? Oh, that's cheating. I'm supposed to just have that ready. <laughs> um, I, that's an awful question, Stephen. And yeah, I love awful questions. <laughs> um. okay, I'm going to say, I'm going to say my favorite movie at this moment is nope. nope. And that brought us to a minute. Okay. <laughs> and what are you currently reading slash watching? Right now I'm watching the second season of White Lotus and I have not finished it yet. So don't tell me anything. <laughs> I'm really excited. I feel like I can't be on Instagram anymore because everyone's going to spoil it. And then what am I reading right now? I'm reading a Karen Joy Fowler book um, with the title is we are all beside ourselves. I think I might be mixing up the title a little bit. Does that sound right? Um, I was in, is that your, Sarah, is that right? I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> I'd have to look it up. We'll Google okay. it. <laughs> Definitely an older um, Karen Joy Fowler book. And I was in Key West recently for the book tour. And I got to go to Judy Bloom's bookstore And Judy Bloom was like, you have to read this book and you cannot read the back of it. I forbid it. So I, I, of course, I'm following instructions and haven't read the back, but it's a great book so far. How was it like meeting Judy Bloom? I saw that you had that talk. I was like, that would be so cool. It was a dream. She is a national treasure. Um, She's so kind and funny and um, smart and approachable. She's just so generous. It was really, it was very special. I'll, I'll, I'll think of it always. (laughs) And the title of the Karen Joy Fowler is we are all completely beside ourselves. So I think you had it right. I I think I missed the completely, but I was almost there. (laughs) So a question that we've asked since the dawn of time on this show is what is the strangest thing in your search history? Oh, that's such a funny question. I feel like, so I'm working on a new book um, and I've been Googling a lot of, uh, it's set in a hotel. So I've been Googling a lot of antique housekeeping trolleys (laughs) I just like really want to get a sense of what's out there you know like what the (laughs) I need to visualize um some really special old housekeeping trolleys and that's all I'm gonna say about that (laughs) I've learned over time that if I ask that question I can get hints of what's coming up better than if I say so what's the next book (laughs) That is really smart and sneaky. I, 
love that. That's a great, yeah. I mean, of course. Yeah. Okay. Very suave, Stephen. You know, I, I'm good for a couple of things. <laughs> Is there anything else you would like to share with our listeners? Gosh, that's another sneaky one to end on, isn't it? Could be anything. Um, nothing is like, nothing pressing is coming to mind. I am just so grateful to you guys for inviting me on this podcast and taking the time to like come up with these questions, which are always so fun. Um, and I'm just really excited to be sharing the book these days. Um, it's really been so delightful to yeah, get to put it out there after so long spent uh, in the dark. It is the Light Pirate is the book that I am like talking up right now, and I may have gotten a couple copies for Christmas presents. So because <laughs> it just yeah, it fits certain people. You're like this person could really it just fits so well, especially like the female scientist and nature and all of those little elements. I love to hear it. We want to thank you definitely for, for joining us today. It has been our pleasure. No, it has been my pleasure, Sarah and Stephen. Thank you for having me and for everything you do in your library. Thank you so much, Lily, for joining us on Unstacked. The Light Pirate is available in the library collection for checkout. It can also be purchased through your favorite bookstore and online vendors. Check out her website, lilybrooksdalton.com. That's L-I-L-Y. B-R-O-O-K-S-D-A-L-T-O-N.com. Stay safe and read, my friend. It's good for you. Bye. Bye.